This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Jess McGecken, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Wow. We don't often have authors and illustrators, so I'm really looking forward to this chat. Jess is an author, as I said, and an illustrator of picture books and nonfiction, who is inspired by the natural world and who loves crafting stories full of hidden details that the reader can keep finding well after the first look. They're like Where's Wally, but nature books, aren't they? That's a good description. Yeah, that's a very good description. (laughs) His recent picture book, Deep, is an illustrated nonfiction book that explores the hardest places to reach from the molten depths of our planet to the frigid depths of our outer space. It also won the 2023 Children's Book Council of Australia Eve Pownell Award. The highly anticipated follow-up, High, was released earlier this year with the third book in the series, Lost, coming out next year. Okay, so explain each one to me and explain the concepts. Sure. So they're definitely designed to work both independently um, as books, but also as a series. So the first book in the series is called Deep. um, And what I really wanted to do was explore those kind of like amazing hidden worlds that are still on our earth and kind of in the universe. Um, so things like the depths of the ocean and and kind of the, the black holes. And I, I really wanted kind of a Um, Just to use that phrasing or that word deep as an excuse to explore these places that we still know so little about. And I should say that I I work at the museum and I get to kind of talk to scientists every day. Um, And part of the beauty of that is is they'll often tell you that there's so much that they don't know rather than what they do know. Um, So deep was really just an excuse to kind of, you know, ask lots of questions and and not answer all of them just because. You know, what I'm often surprised at, and excuse me to interrupt, is how many living creatures we actually don't know about, that there we're always discovering something, a creature that is completely new to us. Absolutely. It's incredible. Um, And just in all the books, and especially the last one, Lost, which we'll come to in a moment, that's a real underlying theme is is, um, there's so much to protect that we know about, but there's so much to protect that we don't even know about as well. Um, So Deep really sort of sets up the series by, you know, asking questions about what we don't know and and kind of thinking about those hidden worlds, deep in the ocean, deep in the forest, um, and even deep underground um, sort of fossils and and deep under our cities. Uh, The second book in the series is called High, and that kind of takes a a, a new perspective look at some of the worlds above our heads. Um, So I had a lot of fun with that one, uh, looking at things like animals that live high in the canopy of the forest, um, looking at things like tall trees, looking at um, flyers and and birds and uh, humans who have gone into flight for the first time. Um, but then looking uh, even broader than that, sort of at the layers of our um, world um, and our atmosphere, and then kind of all the way into out of space to think about some of the, you know, the things that are orbiting our heads all the time. 
Um, and of course, high is also a nice way of talking about the impacts that we've had on um, our climate and our atmosphere. Because when you start to sort of look at, take a bird's eye view of things, you can really, you know, assess just the impact that we've had on our little planet. Can I interrupt you there? Yeah, again, please, uh, please, yes. <laughs> Kookaburras. Kookaburras. Right? Yeah, kookaburras. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know I'm obsessed. My apartment is in a park and it attracts all sorts of birds, but mainly kookaburras, right? And I don't know what it is about those birds. I really don't, but I am totally obsessed with how they look, their sounds they make. And maybe it's because I was singing, you know, when I was little, kookaburra sits in an old gum tree. But also they wake up at about 4am and they start, you know, all of them, I think there's, we've got at least 20 or 30 in the park and they're all laughing at the same time. That doesn't bother me at all. I mean, it actually gives me great joy and I hear it every morning. But when people stay with me, particularly gets from overseas, they just can't get their head around that bird. Why has it maintained the love, the affection, you know, because there's hundreds of birds, but why is it in Australia or particularly, I don't know whether it's New South Wales or Victoria, but that the kookaburra is still well-loved and even though it's quite common? Great question. Um, and I think I think it's that song that it yeah. sings. And this, this, you know, themes kind of came out throughout the, all of the books and singing and, and um, the way that we tell stories to each other is a big theme that kept coming up looking at history. And I think, um, you know, animals certainly do that, telling stories to each other and to us. So I think the idea that either that they're laughing at us or maybe with us, um, <laughs> I think um, endears us um, to them or, or them to us perhaps. So song and, um, you know, because really picture books are just songs. Um, Aren't with they? They're rhymes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so that would be, I, I think, um, I think the, the animals that we can, we can t- talk to and sing with are the ones that stay very close to us. Yeah. And so we've talked about high, lost. Yep. Tell me about lost. So lost is really exciting. And I, I just got a copy of the <gasps> podcast, but Show I really me. A, a copy of the post yesterday for the first time, which is oh, it's beautiful. Um, all writers and illustrators will know that that's the most terrifying and wonderful <laughs> moment when you get a copy of your book for the first time. So Lost is a bit of a time traveling adventure um, and it kind of it, it takes everything that we've learned from deep um, and high and really kind of looks at things that have come before and why things come and go on our planet. Um, so Lost looks at things like uh, dinosaurs and why these amazing giant creatures came and left our planet or, or were, you know, <laughs> what caused their extinction. Um, looking at things like the megafauna that came afterwards um, and humans that came along. Uh, and then really taking that framing of lost and, and playing with the idea of things like camouflage, like maybe being lost in the wild is a good place to be. And then there's the impact that we've had on creatures around us as well and, and those that we as humans have caused to be lost forever through things like extinction. So this is, yeah, this is really bringing it together and hopefully with a really hopeful end as well. The, the end of this book looks at things like rewilding and those kind of really hopeful stories of things that we thought we'd lost forever, but really we haven't. So it, it kind of finishes where Deep started in that it still asks a lot of questions that it doesn't answer, <laughs> but um, it, hopefully it does so in a way that will will leave a lot of questions to be um, kind of researched and, and thought of by the reader. I think you'll like this. Um, I've got a great nephew who I look after one day a week and I've talked about him a lot on this podcast, but just a couple of weeks ago, he's 10, right? 
a couple of weeks ago, he said to me, yeah, he's a great age. And uh, I always sit with him, we eat together so that I can, I feel as though that's a really good time to get conversation out of any child, particularly 10 year old. Anyway, he declared, you know, we're just eating our steak or whatever we were eating. And he said, Cheryl, I believe in God. Mm. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. That's interesting. And he said, but I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I don't, I don't believe that. I said, oh, okay. He said, I believe in evolution. I said, oh, okay. He said, because sometimes I feel like I'm a monkey. (laughs) (laughs) That's as good as explanation as anything. Don't you think? He knows where he came from. (laughs) I do. I love the trajectory of that story, right? (laughs) It was fantastic. Oh, that's great. And that's what... um, I think illustrated books can do so well is um, illustrate it to kids. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And, you know, often when I'm reading my books to schools, you know, there's monkeys in, in a lot of these books, there's definitely monkeys in deep. Um, (laughs) But the first thing that, you know, I'll I'll show it to them and and be like, you know, what looks familiar about these animals and inevitably they'll say one of them looks like their brother or sister (laughs) or one of their teachers, which is, I definitely don't encourage, but always. (laughs) That's right. Um, And also it's not an insult. It's no, not at all. No, no. They love animals so much. It's not an insult. The other thing we do um, is we talk about our favourite animals in a hierarchy, like which one comes first, which one comes second and whatever. Elephants is number one for me and dogs are number two. And I I love that. I love the fact that we're talking about nature. He does think I'm a little obsessed with the kookaburras in the park, but I am. But how important is that for kids, just to be totally aware of what's happening around them in terms of animals? I think inherently they're much more aware of it than we are as adults. Aren't they? Yeah, I think it's something that we actually grow out of a little bit as we get older. You know, we get busy and we don't. Mm. We stop looking. We stop looking, exactly. And so I think the most important thing, for kids is just to be, just to hold on to it for as long as possible and be reminded that it's not, you know, you, you can, you can enjoy this and keep hold of that as you grow up and you can use it to inspire you in your job and in your hobbies um, and to protect it. So I think really my job as an author and illustrator writing about nature is just to kind of, you know, just to keep nurturing them and, and keep asking questions asking them questions, um, which we might not have the answers for. So I think it's so important and it gives us, especially now when things are are pretty dire in the natural world, to kind of remind all readers, but especially kids, how much amazing stuff is out there. And how precious it is. How precious it is too, because it's, it just, it it gives us more meaning as, as humans to know that there's things out there surviving and living much better than we ever could. And it's, it fills me with a lot of hope to see the things that have survived for so long without us. Mm, mm. Okay. So tell me your career path, your trajectory, like, you know, how it is that you came to where you're at now. Go as far back as you, as your <laughs> as influences far. go. Sure. So I, it's one of those funny paths that makes a lot of sense in retrospect, but at the time probably didn't. So I'm really lucky in that I grew up um, with a family of artists around me and really strong um incredible female role models, especially. Um, so my grandma um, was an artist and did beautiful uh, oil paintings. My mother is an artist and a scientific illustrator. So when she oh, was, wow. yeah, so she um, uh, worked at the old Melbourne Museum for many years um, and she still does actually as a scientific illustrator 
which is for those who don't know it, an amazing job that, um, you know, when cameras can't do everything, um, illustrators come in and, and draw these specimens that can't be captured in, in the same detail. So I kind of grew up in this house that was filled with like weird kind of like animals and jars that she'd taken home. I got to go and visit the museum a lot as a kid, like in the basement where they kept the scientists and the specimens. Um, and that that's definitely kind of like, you know, inherently in my DNA somewhere. So as that was always, and I was always encouraged to draw as a kid um, and and to not do it necessarily as something that was just to do it for pleasure, not just for the yeah. sake of doing it, um, to, to document something. So, yeah, I grew up and I did a lot of art at school, but I did more kind of when I it was time to decide what to do after school, I, I actually went towards graphic design rather than art, which I'm really glad I did because it gave me a foundation in art as a tool rather than mm. just, you know, there's a lot of pleasure in it, but it kind of made me understand that creativity is something that you can actually switch on and off and that you can, you mm. know, if you stick with it. And I think with graphic design, it gives you kind of a discipline um, that it's it's structured, right? And so that when you go to do freestyle illustration or other, you've got the basis, I think, you know, you've got a kind of starting point if you like. Absolutely, because it's it's all about communication, and yeah. you don't always get to communicate your own ideas, which is a really handy skill to have. <laughs> because <laughs> as a you know, as an author and an illustrator, you, you're not you're working as part of a team, and you've got to take advice from other people. And, and graphic design teaches you to be very good with taking on feedback, but just <laughs> the feedback that you want to take on, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, so kind of. I worked as, and I still work as a designer um, in my day job, but I uh, kind of chipped away at design um, for quite a few years and then kind of picked up illustration again, which was something I hadn't done for a little while, but I had an opportunity to, me and my partner lived overseas for a couple of years in Oxford, which was amazing. Wow. Yeah, because she's a a medieval historian, which is a whole other story. (laughs) um, You too. (laughs) It just gave me the space. When you both introduce yourself at a dinner party. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) A picture book author, an illustrator, medieval. Yeah, yeah. And people are like, oh, what? What? (laughs) Exactly. But it it was just an opportunity to have space away from things to to kind of practice something that I wanted to. And, And for me, that was writing books. And because I... I didn't know how to go about finding an illustrator or an author. I just kind of did both at the same time and practiced both those skills together and was lucky enough to, when I came back to Australia, to get a, a publishing. So was that the first book or did you illustrate something else before? No, then? so that was a, um, I've kind of alongside the nonfiction, I've done some fiction picture books as well. Yeah. Um, so that the first book that I had was a, a picture story book called Fly. And I've, I've had a number of those with uh, a fantastic publisher in Puffin. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. They're not dissimilar to the nonfiction either. They've definitely got those elements um, woven through them, but it's just another little, another kind of trajectory of that path, I suppose. And very often you get an author and an illustrator and, and, you know, particularly with picture books and they're usually two different people, right? So you've got somebody who writes the words and somebody who draws the illustration, but you're doing both. And tell me how the writing came to you. The writing, to be honest, is a bit hard, was a bit harder than the yeah. illustration, I think, because it had less practice at it. But I think to see them as actually skills that are pretty similar was quite helpful for me. So mm-hmm. to realize that actually when you're writing, all you're doing is painting a picture without paintbrushes. <laughs> so to kind of, um, and especially nonfiction, it, people don't respond necessarily to dry facts. So when I was writing, especially these books, I wanted to find a, a language that was a little bit more how like we talk to each other. It was something a bit more conversation and a little bit more kind of there's some humor in it and some kind of a lot, a lot of analogies. So for me, the writing it was really a way of bringing the illustrations to life and kind of uh, just a, another layer of the artwork really. Mm. And were you inspired as a child? Were you inspired by people like Graham Bass, um, uh, Morris Sendak? Yes, very much so. They're all names very yeah. Very high on on the list of inspiration, especially Graham Bass. I think, you know, we spoke a little bit about those kind of hidden Where's Wally details and and he was one of the first, well, not one of the first, but maybe one of the definitely prominent illustrators that I grew up with that was doing that so well. Um, Just hidden layers of meaning everywhere and and things to find and really giving value to to those pages more so than um, others might have been doing. Mm, I love, you know, and people who listen to this podcast will know this, I love picture books so much and I talk about it often and I I still read a lot of picture books because I, I find that um, it is such a powerful tool when it works in terms of storytelling, so few words, but, um, and also sometimes I think, do the words stand alone without the illustration? Because they're so, they come so hand in hand, if you like. One of my favourite books, and I've talked about this a lot, is John Brown Rose and the Midnight Cat by Jenny Wagner. Do you know that book? I do. It's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Well, I've got a dog called John Brown. (laughs) (laughs) He's 17, actually. But that book is so powerful on so many levels, but the illustrations are so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think to answer your question, I, I think, I certainly think the illustrations can stand up without the text. Sometimes the text without the illustrations I, th- I think it, I don't know if they can in, in yeah. that format. I, I think they need the, I think you need, I think they need the space around them to work. Um, I agree. Well, and, and often oh. I, oh, sorry. No, <laughs> often, go on. No, no, yeah. often I find when I'm 
you know, the, the last, the very last kind of round that I do um, when I'm writing and illustrating books is not adding things, it's taking things away that you don't need anymore. And and Deep is a great, classically, these nonfiction books have been filled with so much information and I really wanted to leave at least a couple of spreads in each of them where there's just kind of space for it to breathe because I, I think that's so, so important to leave um, moments of silence and breathing space you know, like, like pauses between sentences and and paragraphs. Yeah. Now I don't know very much about literacy at all. And I don't know very much about (laughs) learning to read. (laughs) No, did you? But when I I see children now, because I've got lots of great nieces and nephews and they just love devour books, but they're telling the story very often. It's been read to them. Right. And and you would have seen this. It's been read to them. They can't read. Let's say they're two or three. I've got a two-year-old who's crazy about books and I see him reading. And he is following that illustration and telling the words. And that's, I mean, that's how we learn, isn't it? We, we watch yeah. people and faces and, and landscapes and, and that's, you know, that's a, a greater skill, I think, in some ways than uh, reading is, is just giving words to those pictures. But I think, yeah, we learn through memorizing pictures first and foremost yeah. in everything yeah. we do. Yeah, yeah, it's so lovely to watch. So you became a graphic designer, all right, and then tell me what, so you started working at the museum. How did you get there and what's your job at the museum? Uh, I did. So I, I work as a graphic designer for the museum. So we've got oh, a, yeah. a team of designers that works on our exhibitions and all of the other stuff that comes along with a museum. So updating labels and creating signage and maps and things like that, which was an amazing job that I sort of fell into, <laughs> not not through any connection to my mum or any of, of the, her past, but it was just um, just an amazing job that happened to come up, uh, which I got, which was great. And, yeah, alongside that, also just developing uh, a way of communicating my own ideas um, in the form of picture books um, around nature and the world around us, I suppose which has, yeah, kind of led me to these wonderful nonfiction books, which I've really, really enjoyed. So um, do you think your job, Jess, inspired you to write these picture books, these nonfiction picture books, like what you do during the day? I'm sure on some level it has, but I think I think the people around me at that job inspire me more than the job itself, I think. just Yeah. Just knowing how many people there are that study these amazing <laughs> niche things takes the pressure off me having to learn them, you know, off by heart, because it means that I can kind of just ask questions and I guess being surrounded by these. And they, I don't think they'd be offended. It's like your reference library, isn't it? It's right Exactly. There. But, that, but yeah. that, and that's not exclusive to me working there. It's, it's anybody can contact these people and, and visit these places. And I think realizing that there's the vast, vast majority of people don't mind being asked about their knowledge base um, was a real a real turning point because it, it I, I let that fear of asking people questions kind of went away and that kind of just joy of of bringing up conversations with people and saying what do you know about this kind of came to the fore and i'm sure that everybody wants to tell you what they know oh, everybody um, loves to talk about what they know everyone okay so i've got another question for you so I talk um very often to fiction writers and a lot of those a lot of people uh, write uh, historical fiction and one of the things that I hear a lot from um, fiction authors is the balance between research and story, you know, and that would apply to you, wouldn't it? Like how much research do you do before you take pen to paper? It's a good question. Um, 
as much as I can, yeah. but with the caveat that not all research is created equal, I think, in terms of, and again, this is where in one of those amazing connections that has been so helpful, having a partner who studies history um, and is a, is a you know, historian um, in her own right, she will tell me that, you know, those primary source pieces of evidence are the most important things. Um, so to kind of question, question the sources of what you're reading as well. And so that's really helped to kind of make sure that I'm doing research, but I'm doing the right research. So I'm not necessarily looking for something told in other people's words. I'm looking for those actual sources of, of how we know these, these pieces of information. Um, if that makes sense. So things like, Oh, that makes so much sense because I do that a lot on social media. I'm very active on social media, particularly Instagram. And at the moment in the current world that we're living, I'm sharing a lot of stories about, um, what's happening in Palestine, Mm. but I'm very, very careful because I don't want to be sharing fake news. I don't want to add to people's confusion. Mm. So with every post that I see, I go back to the source and check the source out. And I think that's important in everything we do. Absolutely. And, and often it's not just the source, but the source's source. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And then and that, I'll Google something and think, is this true first before I start even thinking about posting it? Absolutely. And that, and going back to kind of, you know, scientists, what's great is is they won't tell you if they don't know something. They will tell you if they don't know something. They won't make up something. So, Yes. If I'm going to draw a dinosaur, I want to find somebody that knows as much about that dinosaur as they can. But then they'll be like, well, we don't know what color it was. And I'll be like, oh, great. That means I can make it pink or, you know, brown or purple. It it doesn't matter. So it's, it's about getting to a point where you know what it is that you want to kind of create, but um, accepting that these things that will never be right. um, And that's okay too. I got another question for you. So you get the first book published, Deep, right? Yes. And now I I ask a lot of authors again, but mainly authors of of memoir this question, which I think kind of applies to you. How do you feel when you put it out there in the world, right? Fiction a little bit differently because you can hide behind the fiction wall. But when you're doing your books and you've got all those peers at the museum, right, you know where I'm going with this, and here's the book and you're super excited, do you worry? Because often scientists are such perfectionists. Often, I mean, it's those people's jobs to get everything perfectly right and make sure that whatever's in the museum is accurate. And so here you come out with a picture book for children. Do you get nervous about their first response or their response? A little bit. Yeah, definitely. Like it's yeah. natural and, and even, um, you know, kids as well. I've been corrected by five-year-olds that know more dinosaurs <laughs> than I do. But that's okay because I think if we didn't put it out there in the first place, we'd have nothing to talk about. We wouldn't learn anything from each other. So I kind of you know, I do everything to make sure that I haven't made mistakes, but if I have, like, uh, I embrace it and say, look, I'm, I'm human. And, and I can (laughs) tell you, I worked as hard as I could to get this right. But if, if things have changed and and things do change, history doesn't stay the same. New evidence is found that purple dinosaur might be proven to be a bird instead of a, a reptile or one in the same. Um, so the ground kind of shifts around too. And I just kind of like that we're here for a certain amount of time and we do the best we can to get it right. Knowing that we all have our biases as well and accepting that I'm not writing, I'm writing from my privileged point of view and and not everybody's writing from that same view. So mistakes are fine, I think. 
Yeah. Okay. I'd hate to see people coming up to you and saying, well, this isn't right. This isn't right. That would just give me an excuse to, you know, write another book about. That's right. I'll correct it in the next one. Um, So if you're working, you're working full time, when is it that you work two jobs? Like how do you approach (laughs) illustration and writing? Are you a late night person, early morning person? When, When does that creativity happen? A bit of both. And going back to the graphic design element, like you just have to kind of squeeze it in. You can't wait for a perfect Sunday when the sun's shining and it's, you know, 23 degrees and um, you you can't, you can't wait for those windows to open. So you've just got to squeeze it in, you know, before work and after work and on the weekends. And, and I know that most, the vast majority of writers would have that other income source because um, you can't really do it. There's people that do, but it's, it's not possible for everybody to do one or the other so just kind of feeling in the cracks I think with with it is the best way that I've found to do it yeah and do you find the difference like how do you approach writing fiction versus non-fiction is that a different headspace for you or a different method or you use the same approach I think it's pretty I think for me it's a bit of on a subconscious level they're a bit different but really it's just telling stories and it's whether that's based on fact or whether that's based on, on something that's not fact. It's the same. The same techniques will get a reader um, to laugh or cry or you know take a breath or or, or be intrigued. Be interested. Or be intrigued. It's the yeah. same. There's a lot of overlap, mm. I think, between the genres more than we kind of care to admit because we we like putting things in boxes and saying it's fiction or nonfiction or you know. But I, I like the ones that are a little bit of both. Okay, the series is called, well, it's Deep, High, which is uh, out now, and Lost, which is coming. How many books all up have you done? So for this series, it'll it's just the three, just this lovely trilogy, um, and Lost is my 10th book. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's a nice number. So there's a few more coming after that, which I can't talk about just yet, but I there's definitely a few more non-fiction ones on the way as well because it gives me such pleasure. <laughs> Well, Jess, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to chat. Thank you so much, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.